listening to First Church Charlotte. All right, let's start heading back to our seats. Great to see you all in the house of the Lord. Amen. We are continuing our Bible study that we started last week entitled First Church. I have been working very diligently on it, and I have been running into a familiar problem where I developed this quite detailed structure of information, and then I realized that I'm going too deep, and I'll never get finished. I'm, I'm doing too much information, and I need to put this into about four weeks because I want it to be part of who we are as a church. I want to be able to do it on a, an annual basis. I, I believe in why, and I think we all need to be on the same page of why. Why we do what we do, why we worship how we worship, why we uh, come together in the way we come together. And so I have, I had an experience today where I had this very detailed Bible study and, and I, right in the middle of it, I mean, I had a ton of information right in the middle of it. I realized there's no way I can, I can do this in 30 minutes. And although some of you often ask for me to teach longer, uh, I, I want to try to stick close to that, you know, 30 minutes to an hour and a half. I don't want to, I don't want to go over that. So, uh, lesson two, First Church. I introduced you last week to the idea of just how that first century church must have felt and how it might have it might have been for them. We are not there and we cannot know for sure. And so I think it's appropriate that we, we sort of speak gently about what we can know uh, for certain and what we perhaps have to try to understand with some effort. Uh, but I, I very much want to be a church that doesn't just have First Church as a name, but we in our, in our, our hearts, we represent that authentic Christianity. Why, why do I say authentic Christianity? Uh, because Christianity is a, a, a label now. It is, it almost, in many ways, has the same connotation or the same association as like a, a, a citizenship or, uh, say, an identity of some type. Oh, I'm American. Oh, I'm from Mexico. I'm from Guatemala. I'm, you get the idea. Oh, I'm a Christian. Uh, that is really not how this thing started out. It started out with people authentically moved to a different way of living, a life built on different values, a life built with different goals, a life that felt different, a life that truly was not simply um, labelized identity, uh, I'm a Christian, but rather a complete way of living and being. And that is what I, I'm wanting to, to get here today. Uh, we can get Christianity wrong. Uh, it's been done by more than a few insincere people. Um, I, I don't want to get it wrong. You don't want to get it wrong. I, I want to remind you all of this in my pursuit of Scripture, in my pursuit of, of, of the Bible. Uh, it doesn't matter, and, and I say this very, I don't want this to be misconstrued, okay? But I want to say this. Um, if, if I, as a Bible student, get the Scripture wrong, it won't matter 
whatever if you think I'm right. Does that make, does that make sense? Uh, if I get it wrong, it won't matter if if uh, any individual approves of me. To be authentic Christian truly means at some level of our life, we live for an audience of one. Amen. You see, I know that's, I know that's maybe a, a challenging way to think about it. And uh, I certainly am slowed and made to reflect when I think of it in that way. And so I, I can think of people I admire, uh, people here. This church is filled with people I admire. I respect your prayer. Um, uh, hopefully you respect my prayer. Hopefully you respect my 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 life and my effort. Um, but I, I want you to I want you to see that we are serving God. We, 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 we are not serving one another. We're not serving, uh, you know, the, the, the great uncle you had who had a great relationship with God say, we must be authentic. We must please God. And so living with that sense of an audience of one strikes to the heart of being an authentic, absolute, sincere, withholding nothing, wholly focused on the Lord believer. That is the goal of First Church. Amen. It was the life choice of the First Church, and it is the goal of this First Church. So let me start by reminding you of how it must have felt uh, in that first century. I'm not going to read a text, brother, so um, just you're welcome to stay up here. You're better looking than I am, and so you can stay up here and, and just, you know, say amen real loud. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to remind you that in this first century of the church, uh, the story of Jesus is being noised abroad. There are much more people talking about it as a uh, an event within society than the apostles. The apostles represent the light sources. They represent those who have been with Jesus. That's why Jesus chose them. In fact, one of in the Gospel of Mark, I believe, where, where the, the the choosing of the disciples is shown, uh, Jesus uh, it actually says he chose them that they might be with him. Being with him matters. It matters. That's why we ought to endeavor to walk with Jesus. Can I have some agreement in the house? Being with him matters. There are some things you get from presence. Presence. Being in their presence. Uh, this is why James, the brother of Jesus, goes to immediate pastoral status within the church, even though he was not a believer during the life of Jesus. He became a believer after the crucifixion and the resurrection. How is it that James can speak with so much authority at the first gathering of the church? Because no one had spent more time with Jesus than James. And I want you to see how in this in this New Testament church, um, they, they are completely and totally, unashamedly Christ-centered. They have not yet developed a theological understanding of how the Old Testament fits into the New. 
They hadn't developed that yet. Paul is perhaps in the first 10 years or thereabout. Paul is maybe either in Arabia retracing the steps of the patriarchs. Uh, there is, um, all of these are Bible studies I've been doing lately and I haven't, I, I keep wanting to throw them in, but every time I do, it slows us down. So let me try to edit myself on the fly and apologize. Uh, he is now back in Tarshish and there he's kind of in limbo. Uh, Paul is studying. Um, he, Barnabas, Barnabas is an encourager. He's not a theologian. Um, Peter is arguing with God about visions in the top of the house <laughs> and uh, he's not arguing very long. He is uh, receiving the word of the Lord. I want you to see all of these things are happening. There is no clear systematic understanding of how the old law fits into the new. But even when they don't understand how it can be, they are absolutely committed to this man, Christ Jesus, who changed everything and showed the world that he was more than just a man who after the temple of his flesh was destroyed on the third day, he rose himself from the grave. That changes everything. And so although they don't have a lot of understanding, it will come with teaching, doctrine, and revelation. Uh, although they don't have it, they are com- completely committed to Jesus. They may or, not, may or may not understand how Abraham represents the path of the faithful, but they're still committed to Jesus. They may not know about the disagreements on whether or not circumcision represents a continuing covenant or a covenant that was with the house of Israel. They don't know about that, but they're committed to Jesus. I want you to see this because we can sometimes get distracted into many different things and forget that at the center of this thing, I need a continuing relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I need to have a prayer life. I need to study his words. I need to walk with him. This is a Jesus-focused church. And so, although there's many things they don't understand, they're absolutely committed to this man, Jesus. All kinds of people are believing. Uh, They don't know what the consequences of that are. They don't know where it's going to end. Some of the uh, Jewish people don't like the fact that there's all kinds of people. The people who come in eat differently. That's a big deal even today to the Jewish faith. They they live differently. They have different uh, standards of how how you just do life, like like how you court uh, 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 somebody, how, how you how you make up for a wrong. Different cultures solve all of these problems in different ways. And if you cannot hold your culture loosely and keep your focus on Jesus, the New Testament church is going to be one stumbling block after another. If you have to do it the way your uh, grandma did it, because that's the way she did it, and you can't accept people whose grandma did it differently, the New Testament church is a nonstop sequence of offense to you. Do you see? But what is uniting these people? Why does it not simply all die when they can't explain it 
until the author of the book of Hebrews not only finishes his book, but it's distributed widely enough for people to say, man, whoever wrote that, I, I, I like to think it was Paul or Apollos, but whoever wrote it, man, they were mighty. And if, if that's what it takes, the church is going to fall apart. But the church is held together by this truth. Jesus is the way. Yeah. Even if that's all you have, walk in that way. He will lead you. Jesus is the truth. Even if that's all the truth you have, walk in that truth. He will lead you. And Jesus is the life. It disturbs me when I see churches split and fight and wrestle and cuss and shoot each other. Uh, Maybe not shoot, but you know, in some generations, over things that are not centered around Jesus Christ. And I want to say, guys, you would not have survived the first centuries of the church. You would just not have survived. You would have went back wherever you came from because this is what held them together. They had a million differences of culture and background and creeds and customs, but they all said, look, let's agree on this. Jesus just changed everything. And if all you have is Jesus as a story, if you'll walk in that story, he'll take you somewhere. And if all you have Jesus as a way of life, you should walk in that way. And if all you have is Jesus, the man, as a truth, you should walk after that man. He will give you eternal life. I think this is so important because now we are blessed with depth of scripture, which we use. We do theology. We do understand Abraham. We do understand how we fulfill the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do understand the leading of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do understand the signs of his spirit in filling. And we we have it now. But if you want to understand the character of that first church, I want you to see people who are like this. Oh, well, I've never done it that way. It's not really the way I want to do it. And I'm not going to do it that way. But I'm glad glad you're here. Do you, you guys get that? I, I, you know, we, we never ate that way. I've never heard of, you know, I love blood pudding. What do you mean you don't like blood pudding? Look, um, you know, what do you mean you don't like bacon? Who doesn't like bacon? You see what I'm saying? You eat bacon? Oh my goodness. Well, I don't think I can go to church with, uh, well, uh, okay, let's just calm down here. <laughs> um, Let's agree on Jesus. That is the hope of the first church. There's a million things to fight over, and there's one great shining truth, one star in Bethlehem sky, one cross that becomes the altar upon which the presence of God dwells, and the blood of Jesus is shed, and the Lord is victorious over sin and the grave. So, uh, this first century church, there's a lot of uh, people who are hoping Paul can come by and, and give them understanding, but there's only one Paul. In this church, there's lots of people that hope that, that Peter can swing by, but there's only one Peter. And, and in the meantime, man, Jesus, the, I, this, I, 
that the fact that God would not use us for his pleasure or manipulate us or us manipulate him, but that he would love us so much he would serve by by paying our debt. And then he would invite us to live differently and not look at our fellow man as competitors, but look at them as people we can serve. It changes everything. This is the feel of the church. The sayings of Jesus are being collected. The disciples, uh, when they're together, undoubtedly are sharing memories. Do you remember remember when he said, oh, that's right. Man, how could I forget that? You know, John Mark is writing stuff down. Would you tell John John Mark that story. Peter may have already told him, but we cannot let that story. This is what is happening. And John Mark, young man that he is, literate, uh, lingu- uh, very strong writer in Greek and can speak fluent Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. And, and so here he is in the, in the story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell John Mark. He said, what? He said, go and sin no more. Oh, that has to make it into the story. Okay, this is what is happening. In the meantime, the unifying, uh, the glue of the church is faith in Jesus Christ. This is why when you read the Gospels, you will find over and over again, whether it's the Gospels or the Epistles, you will find the preachers saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not trying to convince everybody that that faith is the end of their journey, but they're trying to get them to start there because that is the one thing that everybody is being bound together and held to. Faith in Jesus Christ is not an end, but it is an absolute and beautiful beginning. You see? And from that moment of agreement, we now can walk together. Don't be one to try to skip over the scriptures in the New Testament where it sounds as though the writer is just saying, just believe and that's enough. Don't don't be afraid of those scriptures. That is what's holding the church together. And even today, when church is done right, I may do it differently than you and you may do it differently than me, but we are bound, knit tied up, tangled up in Jesus Christ. And that is our unity. That is our strength. That is our hope. It is in Jesus and ye are complete in him. And so while this is the feel of a large community, the apostles are traveling and they are teaching and they are preaching. Uh, In the book of Acts, uh, the study I was actually putting together, I may actually at some point do it as a different series. I can't do it in this one. It's too long. But uh, if you go through the book of Acts and and you identify every sermon or speech that is made before people, and there's quite a lot of them, uh, various audiences, various speeches, uh, you would immediately think of Peter's message on uh, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter number two. But that's just one of the more famous ones that we celebrate primarily, um, uh, kind of like as a a church culture, because we want everyone to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and and that's a good thing. Uh, But there are so many speeches. There are four types of speeches or or sermons uh, in the book of Acts. Some are made to uh, Jews. Some are made to Gentiles. Some are made to God-fearing audiences that do not believe in Jesus. And some are made to heathen audiences that are not Jewish. And this is what's astonishing, is every one of them reads slightly different. And that makes perfect sense. 
Because it's different contexts, different So when we look at these speeches, if you identify who Jesus is talking to, like uh, one of the speeches he makes toward the end of the book of Acts is to the church leaders. He's about to go to Jerusalem. He makes a speech to the church leaders. And this is the one where he he talks about, um, did not Jesus himself say it was better to, to, to give than receive? That's from that speech. That is going to have a different feel and sound than when he's preaching to unbelievers, say, on Mars Hill. And so yet... If you take each, each speech and you try to make each speech the whole story, uh, you're, you're, you're kind of missing the beauty and the depth of all the different sermons, all the different uh, communications of the apostles. And so where the apostles are, you have more insight, some more than others. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, Peter is not near the theologian that Paul is or the author of the book of Hebrews. Um, he is not even the theologian that John is. John, um, although perhaps not educated in the same manner uh, that Paul was, John is an astonishing theologian. In fact, I would say the gospel of John, I'm, I'm off on the side road here again. Y'all forgive me and give me an indulgence. <laughs> the, the gospel of John is probably the most theological of all the Gospels, and uh, it is it is one of my favorite Gospels. Um, but don't worry, I'm not going to do a three-year uh, Bible study on the Gospel of John. Um, so, uh, at least not right now. Um, so, they where they are, there's more understanding. Paul seems to have more understanding about the integration of Old Testament truths into the fulfillment through Jesus Christ. You cannot read the book of Galatians. You cannot read the book of Romans. You cannot read either of the letters to Corinthians without understanding what that Paul is really putting it together in like manner. The same thing with uh, the author of the book of Hebrews. You read that. They are the ones who... So if they are your teacher, you have... Man, there's a bright light shining and there's a great chance that you're going to understand more than if you are saying uh, with one of the apostles who isn't as verbal or isn't as uh, formally educated and able to integrate, but they will have something that Paul don't have, doesn't have. That is why the church is is, is, is perfectly knit together, one member unto, unto another. And so, uh, as I reminded you and I talked to you about last week, the biggest problem is the integration of different people, different cultures, different backgrounds around the theme of believing in Jesus Christ. And of course, uh, the problem of the Jewish faith making the demands of the Jewish faith upon those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why, in my opinion, this this is why the book of Acts is so fundamental to any understanding of what the church is supposed to be. It's not just a history of what was then. It is a directive, in my opinion, on how the church should continue to be today. I believe there's a reason why there is no amen at the end of the book of Acts. You guys have heard this preached, but it is absolutely the truth. There's no amen at the end of the book of Acts. There's amens at the end of the other books because the book of Acts was never supposed to be finished. You are in the book of Acts. 
Lord, help us to be in the book of Acts, Lord Jesus. Help First Church as a community of faith to be in the book of Acts. Lord, help us to see the miracles that are the signs of your coming. Help us to see the anointing flow among us. Don't let us be afraid, but give us the kind of book of Acts boldness that they had, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And somebody say amen. Amen. So real quick, the book of Acts has two large sections to it that helps you understand the history. Uh, The first part is the ministry of Peter that is primarily in Jerusalem and Samaria. This is uh, chapters 1 through 12. And the second part of it is the ministry of Paul, chapters 13 through 28. This is Paul's continuing mission to the Roman Empire and uh, to a lesser degree, his continuing burden for the house of Israel wanting to see revival among among the Jews. Uh, as I as I told you, and I am reminding you, uh, the church started among the Jewish faith, but it outgrew the the Jewish faith. So, uh, real quick. Let me give you a guideline, uh, or let me not call it a guideline. Let me call it a survey, kind of an outline of of where we are and what is happening and uh, set us up for next week when we talk about how the apostles chose to solve certain problems that happened that that were the result of all of these cultures uh, coming together uh, under a unified faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, what... The apostles are doing are going around teaching and preaching faith in Jesus Christ. Why are they starting there? Because they primarily are preaching to Jews. The Jews know of Jesus, and Paul believes deeply that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not a new religion, but a fulfillment of that covenant. Paul is willing to die for that belief, and several times he almost will die for that belief. Uh, Those who don't like this conversion of the Jewish faith to Christianity are calling him a, uh, calling him a threat, calling him a, uh, I'm trying to think, an apostate of their own kind. And so everywhere he goes, he starts with faith in Jesus Christ. We, all of us, if we want to do it like they did, should start with faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, If they don't even have faith, faith in Jesus Christ, you don't need to worry about the rest of the story. Let's start right there. Do not be afraid. I'm going to say this until it hair lips the devil. Do not be afraid of rejoicing when people start a beginning faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you dare give them a sense of disappointment when they tell you they've accepted Christ as their Savior. Don't dare do that. Let them start there and know that this truth this gospel is going to take them to a personal fulfillment of the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not afraid of people who see Jesus Christ as their Savior. I've been in this church my whole life, and Jesus Christ is just my Savior today as he was when I first started praying that he would be, I would be filled with the Spirit. He is your Savior, and without that faith, it is impossible to please God. You must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Rejoicing with faith in Christ does not make us weak on Acts chapter number 2. 
It makes us wise on Acts chapter number two. Why do you think the apostles do not always lead people to the fulfillment of uh, baptism and uh, the infill of the Holy Ghost? You can read the stories yourself. They don't always lead them there. You want to know why? They're dealing with different people at different times and they're starting where you are. They're not worrying about where you aren't. But as you grow, they are always looking to say, well, now, have you heard about uh, this uh, baptism in, 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 uh, uh, of the Spirit? Well, uh, no, we haven't heard about that. Um, uh, Paul's not showing up with a hammer and uh, a quick draw Bible and the, the tone of debate. He's saying, God has more. That's the kind of tone that we need to have. That's the kind of tone you need to have with your unsaved loved ones. Wherever they are, rejoice with them. And just don't worry about all the way home. Worry about their next step. Why would I say that? That's what the apostles did. That's the only explanation of why they did not take every sermon all the way home. If you don't even believe in Jesus, what are we fighting over how we're going to baptize somebody for? It doesn't make sense. He that wins souls must be wise. And so they are preaching faith in Jesus Christ. That is the most common message you will find in the Gospels or in the Epistles. Faith in Jesus Christ. Why? That's the glue holding the whole thing together. Of course they're going to preach it. They're barely keeping the Jews from fighting with the Gentiles and barely keeping the Gentiles from running the Jews out of town. So what are they going to preach? Let's believe in Jesus. Yeah. And so they are preaching faith in Jesus Christ. They are also leading people to repentance. Repentance is fundamental Old Testament and new. And you will see in their sermons, you will see a continued guidance and direction toward repentance. Usually their style is to mention repentance when the people ask for something, ask for guidance. They don't start with, in other words, they preach faith in Jesus Christ until there is an open door. And then they say, hey, guys, you should repent. Now repentance comes. They are also uh, practicing uh, baptism. They are fulfilling that. Baptism is not simply a New Testament function. It is deeply a part of the Jewish faith. And in among the Jewish faith, they call it, call, uh, it is referred to often in Jewish literature as calling upon the name of the Lord. Uh, that is a kind of a subtext for, for a baptism. And so now they are preaching baptism and the church is interpreting that as they're interpreting the Great Commission as baptizing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, yes, Jesus did say in Matthew 28, 19, the scripture is not wrong. We're not disagreeing over what the Bible says. It does say, baptize them in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. It is in the Bible. You should not be afraid of that scripture. That scripture should be like, hey, this is a great opportunity. If they, if there's any openness, I'm going to point out that Father isn't a name. But if there's not openness, I'm not going to fight over it. Why? I want to do it like they did it. And when there's some openness, then I will go to the next step. But if there's no openness, we're going to build on this theme right here. Jesus is the answer for the world today. <laughs> but once there's some openness, we'll take another step. And so, and so you see, you see this 
is what they, Jesus said. And when people baptize that way, they have good hearts. They're not trying to do it wrong. They didn't wake up that morning and say, I'm going to go forth and do wrong. No, they're trying to do it right. And Jesus did say that. That's why we don't need to have the tone of enemy when we talk to people who are baptized that way. They're not our enemy. They don't have to be our enemy. You see, Paul shows up where they're baptized according to the baptism of Paul. Paul didn't say, that's false doctrine. He said, oh, well, you know, how about, how about we baptize in the name of Jesus? He didn't make enemies out of them. And so we don't have to, we don't have to do that, do that either. They are also seeing people filled with the spirit. It's not just an Acts 2.38 thing. Being filled with the spirit is threaded all through the New Testament. So that represents the fulfillment in our life of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice something that sometimes we do wrong. And I know it's, I'm almost out of time and I, oh, well, you just have to suffer. Um, so <laughs> this is what I, this is, I want you to see sometimes, um, we're, we're, uh, I want you to see the deep faith that the apostles have. If they can just get them started in believing the Lord Jesus Christ, they believe everything is going to come in natural time. That's why they don't formalize the Peter sermon on Acts 2.38 and then every time they deal with somebody, repeat it like a mantra. They don't do that. They have this deep faith that if you ever can start walking toward Jesus, everything is going to unfold to you. And that is why we don't have passages in the scripture we kind of skip over and we hope the preacher just explains that. And so the preacher defensively, no, I'm not saying I want to be. No, 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 no. The disciples have deep confidence that if we can get you started believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything will unfold provided you have apostolic leadership. You know what? There is a great Jesus name revival around the world and more. There is a great revival of uh, spirit field talking in tongues all around the world. In fact, just recently, last week, I heard one of the biggest names. If I said his name, you would know him. Uh, One of the biggest names in Christianity right now, uh, not too far away from us, uh, testified to his friends who I'm friends. I have a second friend, a friend of a friend. He told them that he had recently received the Holy Ghost for the first time in his life. Now this, let me tell you something. Thank God. (laughs) Thank God. This ain't about us. This is about the kingdom. And so the apostles have great faith that if you believe in Christ and you, you have apostolic authority in your life, the whole story will unfold for you. I think we need to have that same kind, that same kind of find. Now, what is happening around their ministry? First of all, there are miracle signs and wonders. They are people being healed. There are people being uh, judged as a sign. There are people being um, uh, raised from the dead. I mean, it's just astonishing what's going on here. But I want to point this out and I want to do it gently because I don't want to make enemies. Uh, but the miracles are never the point. The miracles are always a sideshow to the preaching of Jesus. Now, I'm not against having miracle services. That's fine. But I, I just want to be clear. I want us all to understand they are not the point. They are the sign. Faith in Jesus is the point. However, 
Miracle signs and wonders are part of the New Testament church. That's the first thing you need to understand that is universal across uh, the, the story we have of the first century church. Second of all, persecution is, 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 is universal across. Wherever there is a breakthrough, persecution follows. Sometimes it is from uh, the powers that be, Romans and other unbelievers. Uh, sometimes it is from uh, Jews who are non-believing Jews and don't deceive yourself. Sometimes it is from deceit. Uh, it is from believing Jews. There is persecution from without. There is persecution from uh, within. Uh, the enemy always counterattacks, and there is no place where there is a revival where they do not also have a fight in the Scripture. The third thing: crowds of people are drawn to what God is doing. There is a deep-seated hunger in the human heart for the presence of God. There is a deep-seated hunger in the heart of humanity for the presence of God. And if you have the presence of the Lord working among you, people will be uh, drawn to that, not in some type of a carnival way, but because they have, uh, some people will come for that, but because they have a deep-seated hunger for for the things and the presence of, of God. So there are four things, and I'm almost done, I'm moving quickly. There are four things you see in every church, all through the book, the, all through the, 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 the 27 books of the New Testament, every single church has four things that they always, you always see manifest. Number one, a culture of prayer and study of the apostles' teaching. They do not have the whole Bible, but they do study what they have, the Septuagint, which is the Hebrew Bible. Uh, that was probably the first thing that they, they had. And some of the letters and some of the teachings, you see, number one, a culture of prayer and a culture of studying the apostles' doctrine. Number two, you see a culture of fellowship and inclusion. You do not see an us for and no more culture, but they are going house to house. They are breaking bread. They are having meetings in public places like the court of the Gentiles at the temple. So other people are welcome to come. You see a culture of fellowship. So the first mark was prayer and study. The second mark was a culture of fellowship. The third thing you always see is the leading and the working of the Holy Spirit. In other words, they sought to be spiritual people. Uh, when they were persecuted, they prayed about it. When they were broke, they prayed about it. When they were injured, they prayed about it. They sought to be spiritual people. And number four, in every church, do your Bible study. I, I've, 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 uh, I could keep you here for hours, uh, but I'm not going to. The fourth thing is a culture of generosity. True Christianity is the opposite of self. And so they seek to serve. They don't have an attitude that church is for me. That's identity religion. They don't have an attitude that it, this, everything is by my, what I, I need to be blessed. I need to be, oh no, they have a culture of generosity. So four things, prayer and Bible study. Uh, I know I'm including that in, in one, uh, but I, I, it's how I have it in my notes. So maybe the next time I teach this, I'll be more organized. The second thing uh, is, uh, is fellowship. The third thing is Holy Ghost leading. They're spiritual people. And the fourth thing is a culture of uh, generosity. So, and I'm finishing up with this. How then did the apostles teach? Remember, we have a bunch of their speeches, uh, particularly in the book of Acts, but to a lesser degree in other passages. How did they teach? teach. Well, it's easy to say they were powerful. How could they not be powerful? They had been with him. Uh, I, I do my best. I will never be the equivalent of an apostle. Uh, 
not by that standard. I know some people on Facebook give themselves the title of apostle. Uh, some people give themselves the title of prophet. <clears throat> I just want to be Brother Nathan. Uh, actually, now I'm Pastor Nathan because he's Brother Nathan. And so <laughs> that's the only way to keep us apart. We've learned this the hard way. I'm Pastor Nathan. He's Brother Nathan. Go forth and multiply. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so um, uh Here we go. So how did they teach? First of all, they were audience sensitive. Paul preaches differently before the the religious authorities than he does before the heathen philosophers. Very different style. Very different atone. He calibrates his preaching and his oratory, not his doctrine, but his preaching and his oratory. Well, let me just say this. He doesn't hit them with all his doctrine. He starts them in a appropriate place, but he is a sensitive to the audience. He speaks differently to different audiences. Number two, all the apostles are culturally sensitive or the New Testament church fails. They do not promote any dominant culture over another. At no place does Paul ever use the example of one culture's Uh, style as a dominance over another culture. He never writes to the Romans and says, or writes to the Greeks and says, you guys should act more like the Romans. They're a little bit more conservative than you. He never writes to the uh, Romans and says, you guys ought to be more like the Hebrews. They're a little bit more conservative than you. He never, never does that. He unifies around the faith in Jesus Christ, the great doctrine of hope that we have, and he does not promote a dominant culture. The most astonishing thing to me in the Word of God, uh, well, that's saying a lot, but one of the most astonishing things is that in all of the writing of the New Testament, no one mentions the largest political event of the day when the Roman Empire destroyed Jerusalem. You think preachers nowadays could keep politics out of their preaching? Here at First Church, we try hard to keep politics out of our preaching. It's the way I was raised. It's the way I'm trying to uh, pastor. And it's one of the rules of the road for our ministry team when they teach. We don't do politics here. Why? The example of the apostles, they were all Jews. They could have been very political. They could have used Rome as an example of evil and it destroyed Jerusalem. But if it offends one Roman from becoming a Christian, we're not taking that chance. The next time you hear a preacher being real political in the pulpit, just remind yourself of Peter telling the story to John Mark and never mentioning the fact that Rome destroyed Jerusalem. All right. So, third, how do they solve this? They are principle-based in their teaching, not rule-based. They are principle-based, not rule-based. This is also a continuation of the law, which is very similar in its moral teaching, not so much in its ceremonial teaching. But in its moral teaching, it is principle-based, not rule-based. We'll try to talk about that more in the future. Number four, focus. 
don't have opinions about everything. The, apostle Paul, the, the apostles are not having opinions about everything. They are staking, they are sticking to the main thing, which is this gospel of Jesus Christ. It's almost as though they decide to get the big things right and kind of have open hands with a lot of the stuff that doesn't matter. They don't have opinions about everything, and they emphasize areas where they agree, not where they disagree. And finally, and I'm closing, uh, they whether it's the writing of John, whether it's the writing of Peter, whether it's the writing of Paul, whether it's the writing of James, uh, they all emphasize the true marks of Christianity are seen in your character. Whether it is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 or Paul telling people how to get along one with another with, from different religious backgrounds in Romans chapter number 14 or Paul trying to help the crazy heath, converted heathens in the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter number 8. The issue of character comes out because the only way a church with all these different differences all of these cultural background differences, all of these different politics, the only way they can hold together is less emphasize what matters and let's not have opinions on all the stuff that doesn't matter. And I'm going to quit there. Let's all stand. We'll talk more about that next week, but I am only going to do this series for four. Uh, four, I'll be done in two. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to support our efforts, text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come worship with us.